Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is it like to have an alien contact? How do you know if it really is an alien contact? What qualifies as an alien? Greetings and welcome to the 578th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those far-out questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we welcome a new guest on uh, one of the greatest mysteries of the human experience. And we welcome your calls this evening. The numbers are 800-449-1240, that's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401 766 one two four zero. That is locally. Uh, also, we will monitor your emails. That's Paul at behindtheparanormal.com for your emailed questions. Ralph Steiner is an award-winning science journalist and radio producer. In the 1960s, he did original work in theoretical physics, briefly studying physics and mathematics at the California Institute of Technology and the University of California at Los Angeles. He entered the field of broadcast journalism in 1979. That's interesting. I entered the field of print journalism in 1979. Uh, Ralph reported on ethics, science, technology, and social issues. His radio documentaries on technology, the environment, and social change have been globally syndicated. He has received journalism honors, including the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Silver Award. In 1986, Ralph experienced the first of several UFO encounters that prompted him to change the direction of his life. Since then, he has devoted himself to furthering public disclosure about the presence of non-human intelligence on Earth. From 1995, he helped co-found and develop the original Disclosure Project, which for the first time brought forth former military, corporate, and government participants in UFO events. In 2014, Ralph Steiner joined the advisory board of FREE Free, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, where he participates on an advanced physics research team. He currently produces and hosts a new weekly science-based paranormal radio program, The Other Side of the Universe. His websites include theedgeofscience.com, timelessdreams.com, and experiencer.com. So, Ralph Steiner, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Very glad to be here. One correction, Experiencer website is experiencer.co. Oh, that's why it didn't work. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for that correction. Okay, so we're just going to start this off from um, the very, very, very beginning, because uh, it's a very good place to start. So uh, what were these UFO I events that changed your life? Well, prior to 1986, I was a rather, by any, uh, any paranormal standards, a rather straight-laced science journalist and uh, person concerned about social and political justice. Oh, one, one second, Ralph. Can I ask you to speak up just a little bit? Yeah, that. That's perfect. Okay. Prior to 1986, I was a rather straight-laced journalist working in the field of science, national security reporting, issues to do with the environment, nuclear technology, the nuclear weapons race, that sort of thing. And in September of 1986, I was developing a project that would have been a major series on public radio, a 13-part series, the title of which was The Human Future Beyond the Nuclear Age. The idea was uh, to report on the growing environmental problems that we were becoming aware of and the issue of our own militarism and our march toward mutually assured destruction and to figure out how to solve those problems. It was a global series approaching global issues. And I felt that I wanted to end the series in a, in a very positive way, in a visionary way, 
as I was going out, I was actually writing the, the last two installments up for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I was applying for a very large grant proposal to do this series. And I took a put my word processor on break. I just paused the computer and rested my eyes, went outside and took a look at the full moon and stretched out on my patio here in Berkeley, California. And I saw the following presentation. A star-like object about as bright as the planet Saturn, about one inch from the lunar disk, this was a full moon, and it was in like the one o'clock or two o'clock position, and as I watched, I saw this star make complete circular rotations around the lunar disk, as if it were in polar orbit, except it was moving incredibly fast. It was uh, moving so fast it took no more than 60 seconds to make clockwise rotation. It did three of those, paused in the 11 o'clock position, and then reversed itself and did two counterclockwise rotations around this lunar disk, the rim of the moon, before it blinked out. Now, from any vantage point of science, of, uh, of uh, physics, of dynamics, the aerodynamics, the gravitational physics, that made no sense whatsoever. The only conclusion that a person can come to by the symmetry that was presented and by all of the other anomalous characteristics of that light source is that it had to have been under intelligent control. Natural objects, asteroids, cometary fragments, that sort of thing, they do not behave that way. Another important point is that the context of the work that I was doing at the time as a journalist uh, moving into a rather high-profile position in the field of national security reporting and, and science and technology reporting. Um, that context and the the series that I was proposing, The Human Future, I was in the act of writing a letter to none other than Carl Sagan, the astronomer at Cornell, who was a co-founder of the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Radio Telescope uh, Assay. He was a, a UFO debunker during his career, open-minded but extremely skeptical of the evidence, as was available to the public. And I knew nothing about UFOs. I, this is the first time I had seen anything anomalous in the sky at all. Now, I was a big fan of science fiction. I still am. I love the Steven Spielberg movies, E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I, I wept when Michael Rennie landed on the White House lawn during the day the Earth stood still. <laughs> but I had absolutely no knowledge of the subject. I was very, very ignorant, and so I copped to the same attitudes that motivated Carl Sagan and other professional scientists. Well, show me the evidence. Well, there isn't a lot of evidence. There's just a pseudo-religious cult and all kinds of emotions that surround this issue. It's good water for science fiction, but there's no there there. And so this changed everything. Just, just like Naomi Klein writes in a book about the climate change and, and our economy, this changes everything. Well, this changed my paradigm to such a degree that my entire life path was altered over the period of an arc of about six months. I was involved in a lot of projects. I was producing a 13-part couple of 13-part series on the environment and arms control at the time, plus I was submitting a proposal for a new one, and I couldn't keep my mind on that work. And I, I had signed contracts with executive producers. I had to cough up the goods and finish the project. 
But gradually, my interest just moved toward the anomaly that I've seen in the sky, that it defied virtually all laws of physics that you take it one way or the other. Um, just think about it for a second, folks. If, if, if you see something like that, and it wasn't, it wasn't a glaring presentation, you had to really be staring at the moon to see it, which suggests that I was seeing something perhaps very far away and something that was coincidental to my state of mind might not have had anything to do with my state of mind. But on the other hand, knowing what I now know about this phenomenon and about its interaction with human consciousness, I question even that assumption. So I was seeing an object that, if it was high up in the Earth's atmosphere, which was a more likely idea, an object that was somehow pacing the moon and doing some sort of military maneuver, just hypothesizing that it might be something conventional with uh, exotic technology behind it, it wouldn't behave that way for an observer displaced by 15 or 20 miles. Three years later, I found a, a witness who had actually seen the same thing during the same time period. And he separated from my physical location by a good 15 to 20 miles, which means that if the, the thing that we had both seen was close to the ground, or or perhaps up in the stratosphere at most, one of us would have seen a circle, the other person would have seen an offset to a list. We both saw the circle, indicating that this thing had been very high up in the sky. The other possibility is, was it telepathically transmitted to my visual cortex? Was I hallucinating a directed hallucination that uh, wasn't really there in the sky? Well, I found another witness. So that suggests that it was an independently existing source of light. If that's the case, the very fact that it was able to traffic its uh, perfect circles around the moon at such an alarming speed and be luminous enough to be seen at a vast distance also argued in favor of technology, and it argued in favor of something highly anomalous and very, very sophisticated. So I was off and running with this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really didn't realize the degree to which it had changed the alchemy of my inner processes and my entire outlook on life, but it be gradually began to erode the, the confidence that I had in my, my scientific worldview. I was no stuffed shirt. I mean, I was involved in anti-nuclear politics, and I was very deeply involved in studying you know, spiritual things. So I was very open-minded, but I had never seen anything like a UFO before until that moment. And then a, a bunch of other things happened over a course of time from, say, 1986 to 2001, which culminated in a rather dramatic account. Well, you've answered um, pretty much the next three questions, Ralph. Uh, what convinced you that these were objective experiences, and you've addressed that, including the presence of another witness, and uh, as a person with a scientific background, how did you deal with that? Well, you pretty much talked about that. But uh, number three here, uh, how did other sci did you discuss this with other people with scientific backgrounds? How did they deal with your experience? Well, I had very interesting interludes of challenge on an intellectual level that pulled me immediately from the sandbox into, or the, the frying pan into the fire, let's put it that way. Uh, before I could even do that, my wife, six, six months after this sighting, presented me with a paperback book, the likes of which I never would have even considered reading before I had that sighting. I must have been yammering about what I had seen for six months afterwards because I had no idea that I was talking about it. And she just 
presented me with a paperback edition of of Bud Hopkins' book Intruder, which mm. is yeah. garish. What I thought at the time was a garish picture of the traditional gray alien face standing in the foreground, and then you had like a landed saucer in the background with some, some conifer trees silhouetted against the sky. I I looked at that and looked at the title and give you an idea of what my state of mind had been prior to the, to the sighting and still at that moment. I looked at her and I said, what did you do? Go to the airport to buy me a book? I thought it was tabloid stuff. Why, why, why should I waste my time? But I dipped into it and then I, I read where Bud actually quotes Justice Felix Frankfurter and I was hooked. I, I put that thing down and I, I read it virtually overnight. So I just said, whoa, you know, there, there's something going on here and I have now incentive to investigate this. And if any of this is true, then as a journalist, I am obligated to explore this because it trumps every other subject. It, it really is an ontological uh, moment for, for the human species to get to acknowledge and get to the bottom of this mystery. Mm-hmm. Somehow, somewhere, I, I, I guess I must have been talking at my radio station to people who then networked me to others and some person who I don't even know to, to say how I met this guy began to mail me manila envelopes filled with declassified government documents on this subject, suggesting that there's a long-standing cover-up associated with it. I since got to know these, the person but and became good friends for many, many years for the remainder of his life, but I never, I can't remember how I even met him. That's part of the synchronicity aspect. Hmm. So I, I started to approach it not so much from a scientist because I knew there were anomalies out there, but from an investigative journalist. That took me to investigating what was going on at Area 51, investigating what was going on at uh, associated facilities near Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California, uh, major defense contractors, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, and so forth. They have facilities that surround that major uh, military base that and they and potentially they have a relationship to working on and developing even back engineering technology out at Area 51. So I became a, a, a gumshoe and I teamed up with a fellow named Michael Bindeman who uh, in the early 90s started something called CNI News Online which is the BBS service and he and I sort of co-authored, it was Mike's book, but I contributed a couple chapters to a little book that he self-published called UFOs and the Alien Presence of Six Viewpoints. Uh, I interviewed Stanton Friedman and Linda Howe and a few other people. Okay. Uh, Ralph, could you speak up again yeah, a little bit? Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. I, I helped to contribute to that book. Michael Lindemann and I spent three years traveling in Southern California Exploring while other researchers were looking at the mysteries of what Bob Lazar had talked about at Area 51, I was involved in exploring the area that a lot of people weren't looking at, and that is military contractors and facilities that surround uh, major military bases that might be connected to the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So I, I just dove right in as a, as a gumshoe reporter and began to explore it that way. And I, I met some physicists associated with Edwards Air Force Base. They gave me a lot of information, and I began to put together quite a dossier on the subject. 
because one of the uh, was it one journalist to another. Because uh, the issue becomes, uh, you know, when do you uh, stop reporting on a story and become part of it? You know, it doesn't sound as though you've done that yet in your narratives, <laughs> but it's I happened to me. About becoming part of it. In fact, my partner Michael Lindemann said at one point, "You're turning into a case. You better pack off." <laughs> sure. Well, Ralph, let, let me say uh, <clears throat> before I begin this further questioning uh, that. Uh, I must, and I don't give compliments lightly, but, but your professionalism certainly comes through in a couple of the podcasts I've had the time to listen to, and uh, they were very well produced, I must say. So we, we'll let you certainly promote those as, uh, after our break. Uh, that said, one thing that impresses me about the free group that we discussed earlier, or at least named earlier, is not only the caliber of participants such as yourself, and a number of whom we know, but the broad point of view that it takes, the idea that there is or may be a unifying principle or process behind all paranormal events, even if those events seem unrelated. So for you, what common points link UFO encounters with other paranormal phenomena? Okay, this raises the issue of quantum physics, which Indeed I it does involved. And I happen to have been in... Uh, deeply involved in the development of a concept back in the mid-1960s, which nowadays translates into the phrase quantum hologram. Mm. The idea that uh, we are, our entire world of, of matter and energy is composed of interacting waves that, that interfere with one another and encode information, and in that way, intelligence, memories, uh, simultaneous transmission of information that, that, is, that is transluminal, in other words, faster than the speed of light is theoretically possible within the quantum world. And there is an underlying substrate that fills all space and time that holds enough of that information that, that could potentially account for all paranormal activity that science has identified. Uh, telepathy, precognition, past life recall, uh, memory of uh, previous existences and even uh, psychokinesis and the ability to levitate. Um, I actually had a levitation incident that took place when I was six years old. It was completely anomalous, and it's, I think that probably psychologically is why I got very interested in physics at an early age. I, I flew for about 20 or 30 feet <laughs> in, wow. across the California desert when I was a six-year-old child. Mm-hmm. And defying gravity really sticks in your mind because you don't see people gliding around against the wind very often. You know, flying like a, like Superman or Casper the, the Friendly Ghost, but it happened to me mm-hmm. because I believed I could do it, which sort of connected it up to the fact that my thoughts had something to do with what can happen to the physical world. Mm-hmm. So from that moment on, at age six, I sort of felt... Well, really, you know, there's there's no separation between what thought does and what can happen to the physical world as a, as a result of thought. I'd better figure out how all of this works because this is very very significant. Well, one and thing, I, I'm I sorry, go ahead. The physics at that point, right, right? Child. Okay. One of the things that um, fascinates us, uh, and the, the holographic theory is, is very plausible, and uh, again, my background is in uh, philosophy and theology, and Ben's is in sound design and post-production, post, uh, post uh, audio post-production, <laughs> so 
we we don't really get into the physics very often. However, in, starting in the early 70s, I began to see in paranormal cases, uh, I was trying to keep my head down because I was studying for the priesthood and uh, they did not like what I was doing. I was trying to test some theological theories, which of course immediately turned into mush because they just didn't hold. Neither did the, the traditional ideas, and I don't have to tell you what those were about spiritualism and all this business. It just wasn't good enough. And I began to notice quantum physics. Now, I'm again, not, not a scientist. However, I began to see what seemed to be the multiple worlds interpretation taking place. And I see um, the holographic theory as a, a sort of a variation on that same theme, if not exactly the same pattern. Uh, because I didn't see any other way to, uh, to explain um, people seeing ghosts of themselves, ghosts of places, buildings, uh, things of that kind. Um, many of the UFO phenomena and, and you know, everything, as you say, that, that possibly could be explained by one or more of these, one or both of these theories in the paranormal. So, uh, one thing that bothers us, though, and, and, and you probably run into this yourself, Ralph, and we, we don't know you, this is the first time we've spoken, uh, is the assumptions, and Ben will echo me on this, I'm sure, because uh, I long ago learned that nothing in the paranormal is really what it appears to be. And it really bothers me when people assume that you know they're going out and, and something's skipping down their hallway and, aha, it's Uncle George or Aunt Gertrude. Two weeks after their funeral, it might be something entirely different and something somewhat danger, more dangerous than Aunt Gertrude or Uncle George. Um, h- how do you know in your studies that our epistemology, our way of knowing what we think we know, is actually up to dealing with these phenomena? and that we don't completely misunderstand them because of our narrow paradigm. What say you? You've answered the question. We don't. Okay. <laughs> That's the motto of our show. Everything you know is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to engage in open-minded research. Now, down through the centuries, there have been worldviews constructed based on religious precepts and mythologies that would satisfy as explanations to the population and to scholars. But that changes whenever technology changes and whenever we learn something about the world that can be demonstrated to be factual. So barring a retreat back into medievalism, we have an opportunity with modern science to advance our understanding by looking at at old legacy phenomena from the standpoint of informed inquiry and using an unbiased scientific method to ask the right questions. And that means we have to assemble teams of people who are not afraid to stick their neck out vis-a-vis their careers within the scientific community to take the subject seriously. That that can be difficult. I mean, the scientific method is based on a materialistic paradigm. Would you say that we need to change that paradigm first? We certainly need to challenge it, and it will change once the validity of the evidence for the manifestations become (laughs) crystal clear and and irrefutable. So you have to create a climate. Number one, you need asking the scientific community, there's enough evidence here, you have to take this seriously. Look at it again without bias or prejudice. We, we, we cannot, we, we, we simply can't suffer uh, knee-jerk skeptics who, who turn scientists away from these subjects simply because they, they just believe them with such emotional vehemence. And the result of that is it, it literally curtails uh, the, the inspiration and uh, the impetus of people to, to go out on a limb and take a look at this stuff. I spent 
a year studying with a Ghostbuster and Master Psychic. There's a long story that I don't have time to go into that led me to this person's door. We have to do another show. <laughs> we have to do another show. But I was a I was a uh, a sorcerer's apprentice for a year. The man his name was Nick Nocerino, and he is sort of a teacher of teachers with respect to professional psychics and spirit media. This is a fellow who was an OSS officer during World War II with ties to the CIA, and he was one of the people who helped break the, along with Alan Turing in Britain, helped break the Japanese and German codes. Only he used psychic ability to do it. And from the year 1949 through his death in 2004, Nick trained generations of psychics to master the arts of psychometry, precognition, clairvoyance, clairaudience, um, scrying, the ability to see and remote view uh, objects or, or events that are displaced in time and space. So I was trained by this individual and his team, and I got to work with 25 psychics that were of the current generation in the mid-1990s, working directly with him, who had worked with him for up to 25 to 30 years, each one of these individuals. Very powerful, powerful psychics with laser-like capabilities, and I, could, I was able to observe what they were able to do. And as a result, I experienced seances where presences would manifest themselves. I got to examine Nick's archives dating back to the 40s that had clear photographic evidence of hauntings and poltergeist phenomena, where the imagery is like un is so clear and indisputable with case notes and readings from magnetometers and other devices correlating the observations to standard physics and electronic equipment used for laboratory testing of phenomena. He was able to combine the, the talents of spirit mediums and traditional theosophical seance techniques, so to speak, with laboratory techniques that were standard fare in physics labs. And all of that was recorded on paper with photographic evidence. So from my vantage point, the wheel keeps being recapitulated. This was a 50-year project on Nick's part. And you've got J.B. Ryan with his very rudimentary psychic uh, uh, detection work at Duke University. You have Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences using PK to perturb laser beams in a, holo in a holographic uh, reception module that enables proof of mind altering the path and behavior of photons, causing them to inter cause interference patterns. So there's a lot of scientific work that is being done on the subject. There are legacy investigators like Nocerino who have been doing it for a long, long time, and it, all this stuff is sub rosa. It's marginalized. It's, it's not written up in nature. You don't see articles about it in Scientific American. No, indeed. I'll have to uh, stop you there, Ralph. We'll come back to that. But we're going to take our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, finally thawing out and streaming live on onworldwide.com. We will be right back. Hey everybody, this is the Moose Man. Check out the Groove Line for the best blues, rock, 
funk, classic 50s, and the Beatles every single week. Tune in Thursdays from 6 to 7 p.m. That's the Groove Line right here on Owen. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. And we will welcome you back. Excuse me. <clears throat> And we wanted to remind you of several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. Uh, those are There are links to those on our show website at BehindTheParanormal.com. And uh, those include uh, the uh, USACares.org, uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, and over in Los Angeles and uh, the vicinity of the world where our distinguished guest resides, uh, we have the Youth Mentoring Connection. Tony Loray over there doing great things for at-risk youth in L.A., uh, and that's youthmentoring.org. So check out all those things, and we'll remind you again toward the end of the show. So let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Ralph Steiner, uh, science journalist and uh, paranormal expert. And uh, Ben is going to start off our questions for the second half hour. So you, you brought up a lot of a lot of very interesting interesting points, Ralph, about... Um how how there's all this evidence out there, but nobody really seems to look at it or take it very seriously. Could it be that uh, the, that it's sort of a societal thing? Like when you think like who is the face of the paranormal community specifically? If it's like ghosts or psychics or whatever, you have these ridiculous mediums running around telling you that oh your dead husband loves you, or like um, you have these idiot ghost hunters running into houses with tons and tons of gear and then getting scared and running away. Do you think that has any effect on how the scientific community views the study of the paranormal in general? Absolutely. It trivializes it. It turns it into tabloid television fodder, and nobody takes it seriously because they don't want to be associated with it. And I call myself a guilty party as a journalist way back when, 30 years ago. I had an opportunity to report accurately on another controversial phenomenon, and that is the discovery of uh, what is now called the cold fusion at the University of Utah back in 1989. And like a lot of mainstream scientists, when I was on the air as a reporter and and I had my own talk shows on science and technology, I panned and I spoofed and I debunked the entire situation with cold fusion. And when doctors... Hans and Fleischmann got driven out of the scientific community, driven out of the university, and, and had to close their mouths about this subject. I, I was just sort of chortling with all the rest of them. Nowadays, I would never behave that way. And I know that there is validity to the cold fusion phenomenon, that there is indeed uh, table, tabletop possibilities of tabletop nuclear reactions to produce relatively clean energy uh, but there are physical principles now that explain, in quantum physics, how that's possible. People just pointed fingers back then and smeared the reputations of a couple of chemists who were out of their field in the scientific community. This was, this was a job for the physicist, not for the chemist. Well, likewise, if you, if you see all of these tabloid TV shows about Ghostbusters that are dressed up in all of this garish, woo-woo <laughs> patina, Scientists are just going to put clothespins on their noses, and they don't want to be associated with it. Exactly. Uh, British physicist Peter Strzok, years ago, decades ago, started an organization out in my neck of the woods at Stanford University called the Society for Scientific Exploration, SSE, and its charge in its mission statement basically is to, to look seriously at the paranormal and at the UFO phenomenon. But you still have, even 30 years after the uh, founding 
of uh, SSE, you have people afraid to touch the subject and afraid to speak out about the, the veracity of these topics on a, a large framework because of careerism and the fear of ridicule. Well, ridicule is the trim tab that causes the scientific community to snap to and, and to turn their face away. Indeed. Ridicule is, is a very powerful tool used by counterintelligence and UFO field to turn both journalism and the scientific community away from examining and asking too many questions with respect to that particular paranormal subject. Okay. Well, science is only as good as the scientists, as we know. Uh, on the matter of, given everything we've said this evening as a background, what is the UFO phenomenon all about? 25 words or less, Ralph. No, just kidding. I don't know. And that's an honest scientific statement. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, there's a lot of allegations regarding a government a government cover-up. In other words, there are echelons within the power structure of our own government that has a lot of information under lock and key, and for various reasons, sociopolitical, economic, and ontological fear, they're not releasing that information. But you also have ordinary citizens that interact with this, myself included. And I've actually myself been face-to-face -face with three beings that were not human and had remarkable abilities. And I've seen them face-to-face. -face. And once you have experiences like that, then the question of where do they come from or who are they certainly raise, raise, rise to, to the forefront of your mind. It, it, it's it's less an issue of is it real to what's going on here, what do they want, where are they from, and, and, and why are they doing what they're doing, and what is their relationship to us. All of those are transformative questions, but because you can't get hard answers out of anybody who might have those answers tucked away with a cloud of disinformation that surrounds the subject and with every attempt to nail it being thwarted in a very adroit way by counterintelligence operations, of which I've had contact with myself, uh, then it, it becomes very hard to answer that question of yours, and that is, what is the UFO phenomenon? What does it represent? You can speculate, and we can speculate to we're blue in the face, and wherever I go and wherever I speak and, and wherever I go on the radio, uh, people always want to know, can you tell me specifically who the beings are, where they come from, mm -hmm. they come from mm -hmm. another solar system or another galaxy or another dimension? And my only answer can be possibly all of the above. Yeah, yeah. We can perhaps, though, make inroads into the question to try and make sure that it's the right question. What I'm getting at there is uh, the, uh, the issue of advancement, for example. That often comes up on the show, right, Ben? Uh, yes. We have... There, again, this goes back to the assumptions I think I mentioned earlier. We assume that, or at least, we, at least our, our, the way we talk about it seems to assume that advancement is defined by technological advancement. In other words, whoever or whatever this is or they are is more advanced than we are. You know, like period, because they have flying saucers or they, or they have the ability to move between worlds or to manipulate the hologram or however you want to put it. And that, that bothers us a lot, and I know I'm speaking for Ben, too. I would much rather have advanced beings who 
are spiritually and morally advanced. I mean, what was the most advanced nation technologically in the 1930s? Nazi Germany. And look where that got us. So you see where, I, see where I'm getting, what I'm getting at here? Yeah. And the whole issue of abductions, I mean, if that's what it appears to be, and maybe it's not, uh, even, even adds some, some depth to, the, to that concern. I mean, what's well, I always just find it strange how we put human motives on non-human creatures. Mm. And I find, I find that other, rather disconcerting. I, I don't know if either of you feel the same way. Well, I, I certainly feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. So any further comments on those points? Well, I think you really enumerated the point. And we, we cannot allow ourselves as scientists to project our own assumptions into interpreting what these things are. You need to gather the information without, without jumping the conclusions. And unfortunately, the human mind and the human heart tend to jump the conclusions because that's what we want. We want answers. So it's very hard public interest and professional scientific interest in a subject like this uh, unless you are able to convince people to just put their, their that tendency on hold. Now, it's easier to do that with scientists who feel more at ease with the subject because they will then treat it like any other subject of inquiry. But with journalists, with theologians, and with experiencers, people who are traumatized with these encounters or simply awed by them, they want answers, and we can't give them answers. What we can do is to give them the commitment to explore and to ask questions and to probe and to uh, and to melt away or cut away or to extract the the inhibitions and, and the ridicule that might surround it and to, to rub off that oftentimes rubs off on the experience. Indeed. So indeed. getting back to main theme of this interview, and that is the organization FREE. Yes, please, please talk about research that. Research into extraterrestrial encounters. It was created by experiencers and scientists to provide that grief that enables this particular subject to go down easier and, and to be looked at with credibility. It, it's sort of a, a combination of being a a, a referral service and a social network for experiencers and a scientific research institute and a sociological research institute. It provides buddy services for experiencers who are having a hard time with this and need to connect up with psychological help givers. It also allows scientists to debate the issues from very sophisticated perspectives and to meet and to interact with those experiences. So the organization has been set up to work on all of those fronts simultaneously. And it was created by a person who was the most unlikely candidate in the world for anything paranormal, let alone going out on a limb to put his career on the block to start something like this. And that is a a tax attorney who worked for the who continues to work for the Internal Revenue Service who had never had a paranormal experience in his life until he got bopped over the beam by this stuff back in 2012. That's the story right there. It was founded by somebody who was an avowed materialist and an atheist with a, a Catholic background. And then the cosmic egg cracked open and he began to interact with beings that displayed remarkable powers. And the result is he searched out 
people like me, people like my friend Whitney Strieber, and make contact with us and desperately ask for help. So I was one of the people he contacted back in 2012, and I pointed him toward Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, the Apollo astronaut, retired Apollo astronaut, who's also a theoretical physicist and a developer of the quantum hologram theory. And Ed Mitchell is somebody who I've worked with over the course of the past 20 years on several occasions. We're both co-founders and developers of the original Disclosure Project. We're on the same team. And so I pointed Ray Hernandez, the primary founder of the free organization, to Ed Mitchell's website. And then through all kinds of synchronicity, uh, Ed's colleague, a professor of cosmology and astronomy at Harvard, at the Harvard-Smithsonian Astronomical Observatory, Professor Rudolf Shield, one of the world's experts in black holes and uh, space-time physics, contacted Ray Hernandez and started to teach him the fundamentals of quantum physics and quantum holography. And then it just started to roll like a snowball and get bigger and bigger and bigger, and before you know it, Ray had used his is the lawyerly acumen to create a nonprofit foundation that we could all work under. And, and thus we have this, this, this remarkable stone that is rolling downhill, gathering no moss, mm-hmm. free. Well, that's, that's, uh, it, I think it's exciting, too. I've had several long conversations with Ray, and uh, matter of fact, he... Um, wouldn't take no for an answer about my, my getting involved with it, and uh, albeit just as an interviewer at the moment. And uh, I look forward to that. When I saw some of the people to be interviewed, I, I couldn't, as a journalist, and, and you know the feeling, I, I couldn't say no. So yeah. I'm looking forward to being more involved with Free. And, and Ben and I don't join things. I, I belong to, to MUFON, and that's it. Um, and this will be number two, so I'm very happy to uh, to sort of uh, uh, second everything you, you've said about it. It's a very a good group and, and very impressive um, uh, list of, of of people who are trying to uh, to get somewhere with this, and that's really good. Um, on the disclosure issue, Ralph, uh, that has been a topic around our dinner table more than once, and uh, one wonders first of all. Why is there a need for it? In other words, well, that, that's not really, really the right question. Why the secrecy about this issue? We, we have a theory about why there's such secrecy. But in a world where people are used to the Klingons and the planet of the apes and uh, all the, I mean, what, what, wouldn't people be rather excited if this is what it appears to be, you know, people from other planets? I mean, what, what, what say you on that? I would say so. But keep in mind that the Planet of the Apes and the Klingons and all of the science fiction fare that has been out, out there since the, the 40s and 50s in the movies and on television may very well be part of a long-term counterintelligence project to acclimatize our citizens to this presence because they didn't have answers and what the people in the elite branches of government had were a lot of fear. And I, I'm making this statement based upon a conversation that journalist Leslie Kane and I had with a fellow who was tied into the National Security Agency back in the year 2002. Uh, Leslie had this source. Uh, we jointly spoke to him on background, and he made it very clear that he was told by people quite high up in the NSA that the government has had since the early 50s a quote-unquote, 
metered release of information program with respect to the alien presence and the UFO phenomenon. The idea is to gradually introduce through the mass media the motifs that they don't want to concretize and to shock the culture with very quickly, but to do so in a way that people begin to take these things for granted. And thus you, you get all of the science fiction motifs, and, and it was actually structurally created so that the public would be unable to tell the difference after a while between fiction and fact. And when the fact really came out, people would say, oh yeah, I've known about that. I, I used to watch Star Trek. I, I've seen these movies. We, we know about that. And, and it would take the edge off of it. So this metered release information project probably has a, a connection to something called the Robertson Panel that mm-hmm. existed in uh, early 1950s. That was a CIA-sponsored panel of scientists that was commissioned to determine whether or not the UFO phenomenon posed any serious threats to national security. In the early 1950s, we were at loggerheads with the Soviet Union. There was the possibility of a nuclear confrontation. The West considered itself literally at, at open warfare at any moment with Soviet Russia and Communist China. And anything that could panic the population could be used, they believed, for a potential first strike against our nation and against our continent. The idea was that if you can blow fake UFOs over a population and capitalize on the mythology and fear of an alien invasion, you can then use that as a, a Trojan horse to launch a real attack that would not be expected. So that was the rationale given by the CIA panel of scientists. H.P. Uh, Robinson, the physicist, was chair of this panel. I knew a couple of people who attended the meeting back in 1953. They issued a, a report in February of 1953 in which they specifically stated, and this is a declassified government document that has been obtained through the Freedom of Information Act on a number of occasions by different investigators, that the, the plan was, the recommendation was, to activate household word entertainers on television, such as Arthur Godfrey and Jack Benny, and to commandeer the services of media companies that are household words, such as the Disney Corporation, to literally propagandize the public and to debunk UFO. And they used the terminology in the Robertson Pamela Report to debunk UFO witnesses to dis- and to dissuade by debunkery the media from taking any interest in the subject. So they, they used ridicule deliberately. They recommended it, and they recommended that Hollywood get involved in the process of of denaturing this phenomenon and to and to discharge the the charge and interest that had been building from the late 1940s through the early 50s, it worked. It worked like a charm. Mm-hmm. Now the reason is, and you you brought that up in your with your question, why the fear? Well, if you take as your starting point the proposition that actual hardware and biological remains have been recovered from Roswell and other crash retrieval. And as a corollary to that, landings have occurred at military bases where these things are able to violate sensitive airspace 
secured airspace and to come right in and, and land on the tarmac, as they've done a number of times, allegedly at Edwards Air Force Base in the California desert, and to interact with military, perhaps to the point where there was transfer of technology as beads to the natives, and then <laughs> deals, potentially yeah. deals. I've got a number of, of sources who, who claim that that is indeed the case. Then you have to you have you have to also entertain the, the likelihood that a curtain of compartmentalization to keep that body of knowledge out of the public domain for initially the same reasons of, of fear and the control of the effect that it might have on the populace and its overall national security implications would be valid. Now things moved ahead in time to where defense contractors got involved in developing aspects of the technology, what little of it they could understand and extrapolate and to incorporate it into B-2 bomber and stealth aircraft, other weapon systems, scalar beam weapons and so forth that we don't know about, the public does not know exist, and possibly even mind control technology. So there are things that could be derived that are so explosive in the minds of military planners that they could, if they if they were discovered by our adversaries, and if espionage was successful in rendering that technology over to our adversaries, it could it could literally ruin the balance of power and the balance of terror in the world. Uh, Robert Sarbacher, who was the director of the Washington Institute of Technology, a rocket scientist who had been associated with the Manhattan Project and the, the project to build the first atomic bombs in the mid-1940s, uh, he communicated to uh, Canadian government transportation um, official Wilbur Smith back in the year 1950 that indeed he had been invited at one point to attend a briefing regarding the material and the biological entities that had been recovered at Roswell, but he declined to attend, but yet there is a compartmentalized, very secret project that is headed up by uh, Truman's scientific advisor, Vannevar Bush, who was the president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at the time, and that this particular classified project had a classification level that was higher even than the hydrogen bomb. Now, that's, a, that's a, an actual Canadian department of transportation government document that has been obtained by investigators. It's a true, uh, verified document. And this former Manhattan Project scientist who died in 1986 stated on the record that there is a compartmented project in the United States in the early 1950s that had a classification higher than the hydrogen bomb. Hmm. indicating just how closely held this information was at that time. And so just think for a moment. Extrapolate the parameters and extrapolate the, the timeline to the present day. Things have gotten very ingrown. There's a great deal of investment in the technology. There is knowledge that has been accumulated behind the black hole, the event horizon of compartmentalization that surrounded the subject at that time, and, it, and it's, it's just gone completely without oversight for 60-plus 
years. You can imagine what it has become today. Well, just as likely as any other scenario. Ralph, before we burn up this hour, which we're doing very quickly, please uh, tell us about your websites, where people can find out more about it, and when people, where people can find out more about free. Okay. Working backwards, the free organization, Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, has a website, and that is experiencer, one word, experiencer.co, not com, but co. There's a companion website, Stellar Packs, one word, S-T-E-L-L-A-R-P-A-X.com, which is a social networking site that has been set up to accompany the free website for experiencers who simply want to connect to other experiencers. So that's off and running. It's under the, the, the gracious, uh, creative spark and, and, and the architecture of our webmaster, Dana Donlan, who is an experiencer herself. By the way, everyone in free is an experiencer except for Edgar Mitchell and Rudy Shields and a couple of sociologists. So we're all, we've all had these experiences. So this, that, the Seller Pack website exists for experiencers to connect on a social network basis. But, okay, that's, that, those are the free online resources. My personal website, if you're interested in journalism, radio journalism about this subject, I have a website with podcasts on it called theedgeofscience.com, all together, no space in between theedgeofscience.com. And I've done a number of documentaries that are up there that listeners would probably find very intriguing. I'm also a visual artist, and my art reflects the UFO and paranormal themes, but also larger spiritual social justice themes. And that is Timeless Dreams, one word, timelessdreams.com. So there are, there are three or four websites that people can go to. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for that. We, we only have a about another minute here. Do we have any idea, apparently not from what we said, where this is all going? What these things really want with us, whether they consider us equals or insects or, or you know, are we being farmed for, you know, who knows? Anything is possible. So I guess I'd, maybe I'd just answer the question. Do you, do you personally have any inkling where this might all be going? I think there's a multiplicity of motives and agendas, but I think that Probably overarching it all is a concern with the evolution of human consciousness and the the training of, of, of souls, if you will, of helping us get past the crisis of our own creation. And probably my 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 this is simply an opinion. I believe that many of these civilizations that are visiting us have probably gone through a period in their history where they've, they've practically destroyed themselves or, or a large portion of their population. Some of these folks might want to help us head that off, and they might also be connected to us on a quantum holographic scale, on a karmic link sort of manner. Mm. So these are broad brushstroke speculations okay. on my part. I can't offer any more than speculations, but okay, I don't well, it's the best we can negative. Do. I yeah. think that there's plenty of positive interaction on the front of contact. Okay. Well, Ralph, we're out of time. Thank you for a very interesting conversation. We're going to do it again, and I look forward to uh, uh, being in touch with you off the air. Okay. Appreciate very it. Good. Thank Have you good very night. much. Take care. Okay. Let's go to our announcements.
So, uh, without further ado, you can visit our show website. That's uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts of past shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on uh, CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can find my books at Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, etc., The Usual Suspects. And uh, hopefully we'll be having an announcement about our upcoming book, Cosmic Journey, Ben and I wrote together. That's, that'll be out before the end of the year. We'll let you know about that. But if you buy uh, these books at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website, I'll be happy to sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those podcasts free. And we'll be speaking at a couple of events this year so far. The uh, uh, bookings are coming in. Uh, first one's going to be April 18th, uh, the Parafest, Northeast Parafest. Uh, and it's going to be in New Hampshire. We'll let you know about that. So next Monday, me uh, that's March 23rd here on ON1240andONWorldwide.com. We will have uh, folklorist and psychotherapist Dr. Uh, Paul J. Leslie for a discussion on shamanism in the American Southwest. And that's about all the time we have this evening. So, Dad? I'm Paul Eno. And I am Ben Eno. And thank you for joining us on this great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.